gang. You're listening to the r Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and this is a little bit of an experiment. I'm actually recording a hopefully shorter, simpler episode today. I'm basically going to tell you about a recent intubation that I did on my last shift. And uh, there's nothing really magical or exciting about this. Um, and so I'm going to say right up front, if you are up on your intubation skills, you feel confident, you feel well-practiced, then you can skip right over this and we'll catch you in the next episode. But if you're like most emergency physicians and haven't done a whole bunch of intubations recently, um, you may very well benefit from just thinking through the setup and the process and everything and just refreshing yourself of the steps. So I'll leave it to you. Now, I'm actually recording this post-call on my way home after a night shift. So that will probably explain the poor sound quality of the microphone and the poor sound quality of the presenter. But um, I should say, you know, I'm also in my car here. It's not as bad as it sounds. I'm not actually on the highway. I'm actually parked at a supercharger right now. So um, safety-wise, we're good. Um, And as an aside, I should just mention, you know, electric cars. It's the way of the future. So, you know, if and when you're thinking about getting a new car, I would strongly encourage you to go get an electric car. A lot of rural people are worried about range anxiety. You know, can you actually get where you need to go? And I will tell you, in my experience, the answer is yes. I have uh, had an electric car now of one sort or another for at least five years, lived in very remote part of the mountains uh, in cold weather, and uh, the electric car is freaking amazing. It handles ice and snow really well because it's not a conventional transmission. Um, and I, it blows my mind, but you know, I compare a Sequoia, um, a giant SUV on studded tires, to a uh, Tesla um, with just all seasons, and the Tesla beats it hands down in terms of handling, which is completely counterintuitive. I don't know how that witchcraft works, but don't be worried about that. And in terms of range, it works great. I mean, there was no supercharger where we were living in the boonies, and um, we just installed a home charger. It was a couple hundred bucks, and it pays for itself real quick because the Sequoia burns about 15 cents per uh, kilometer of gasoline, and the electric car costs us less than a penny per kilometer to charge up. So it really doesn't take that long to see that return. Anyway, this is a medicine podcast, not a save the environment podcast. Maybe it should be a save the environment podcast, but um, I throw that out there because we all need to get electrified and reduce 40% of our individual carbon footprints by stopping burning gasoline. So anyway, food for thought there. Let's get on with the medicine now. So I was in the emergency department, Fort St. Nowhere, and uh, on the ward, there was a admitted patient who I had not met. She was being managed by the hospitalist. And uh, this lady was not super healthy. She was well-known to the community um, in her late 40s, has a history of cirrhosis, and um, had, had multiple trips to ICU in the past, intubated for altered level of consciousness, um, sometimes cirrhosis-related, hepatic encephalopathy, sometimes toxin-related from uh, self-administered substances. And of course, we're living in the COVID era as well. So when the hospitalist called me and said, hey, look, I've got somebody who with a GCS of nine, who's hypoxemic, um, you have to think about that. Now, it turned out we didn't really think she had COVID. It seemed to be explained by other things, but you never really know. So we did this as a COVID precaution intubation, which basically means you gown up, you don't go in and out of the room, and you wear an N95 mask. So we uh, brought her down to the trauma room because the helicopter was already dispatched. We had about 20 minutes to get her tubed and secured before the helicopter arrived because you don't really want to 
delay things any more than necessary. So brought her down to the trauma room because it's always best to do this in the environment that is uh, best suited for whatever critical intervention you're going to do. And the trauma room typically has a little bit more room. It had the ventilator and so on. So had a look at the patient and, um, you know, did not look like a difficult intubation. I did my lemon check, my look, my evaluate the 332 rule, checked your mal and patty, um, ruled out the, the big scary O's, the obstetric obesity, um, whatnot, and uh, looked at her neck extension and all of it looked pretty um, reassuring to me. Her vital signs were good. Her pressure was a little bit soft. It was a 90 systolic. Uh, heart rate was a little bit elevated, maybe 105 or something like that. She did not have a temperature. She was breathing fairly well. Initially, her SATs were not great. Her uh, SpO2 on nasal prong and non-rebreather together was only 91%. But as I was looking at that, wondering why it was so low, I realized that the non-rebreather actually had not been turned on. So she was only getting you know, six liters or something by nasal prong, but uh, nothing by non-rebreather. So that kind of explained that. So we turned that on and her, her sat shot up to 100%. So that's the first learning point is that, you know, when you see uh, some numbers that don't really make sense, just have a little look there because sometimes in the excitement of other staff transferring patients and working in environments they're not familiar with, little critical details like turning the oxygen on get overlooked. No big deal, easy to fix. So now she's pre-oxygenating, uh, SATs are 100%, and I am preparing my equipment. So I use my ABCDE mnemonic twice just to set up the room and then to set up the intubation equipment. So for the room, A is for aspiration, as in I don't want one. And so I made sure that the suction was available. I could turn it on and it actually was sucking. There weren't any of those loose connections because often those um, canisters have a tube that pops out. And of course, there's no suction when um, that's the case. B is for bag valve mask, and there in a bag on the wall was a bag valve mask. So I gave that a quick squeeze just to make sure it worked, made sure there was a mask in there, um, and then realized, you know what, I'm going to need this because I'm intubating, and I'm going to be bagging her for a minute until we get her onto the ventilator. So then I popped it out and um, got it all set up with um, the mask removed because we're going to be using it um, not for bagging during the intubation process, but immediately afterwards. So I wanted the mask off so we could connect right up to the ET tube. And then I've got this oxygen line. But the problem is, is that I'm now running oxygen uh, to nasal prong and to a non-rebreather, and there's only two ports. So I can't actually hook up my BVM at the same point. So what I did was I put the BVM on the table that was off of my left elbow, so it was within easy reach, and I asked one of the um, nursing staff to make sure that was plugged in as soon as we um, were getting to the laryngoscopy stage so that we would transition from the non-rebreather to the bag valve mask just to take care of that detail. And that's an important detail because you don't want to pick that up in a um, rush and no one realizes that it's not plugged in. And of course, by the time I'm elbow deep in the airway, I'm not necessarily thinking about, hey, did I remember to plug this thing in. So it's good to get that assigned ahead of time. C is for circuit, as in how am I going to bag this person afterwards? And I've already talked about the bag valve mask being ready, but I don't want to do that long term. Um, so I want a ventilator. And, and Fort St. Nowhere, this particular iteration had a beautiful ICU level ventilator. Um, so we just pulled that over. And uh, this particular trauma bay had two beds in it. So we pulled one of the beds out and I could actually plug in the mainline oxygen for the ventilator into one of the oxygen ports for the other bed. So it was about a uh, three meter hose connecting this thing, but I could then wheel the ventilator over so it was within reach. And I had that in standby ready to uh, plug in 
to the ET tube and hit start. So that was ready to go. D is for drugs in terms of what is my post-intubation cocktail plan. And uh, I hemmed and I hawed because it really depends on what the transport team was. But I knew that I was probably going to use a ketamine uh, succinylcholine combination to intubate this patient. And so it's reasonable just to continue to bolus ketamine. So I said to myself, self, let's get an extra amp of ketamine and then um, once the patient's secured and on the ventilator then we can think about giving her extra boluses or starting an infusion or whatever and the transport team will be there so as long as i have that little amp ready to draw up and can do that within you know 45 minutes we will be fine but i want that amp in the room ready to go so that um, if we need it in a rush that preparation stuff is minimized and then lastly uh, e is in terms of checking to see if there's an extra oxygen source, and there was an extra oxygen bottle. So if there was a catastrophic um, system failure for oxygen in the hospital, our patient wouldn't be in particularly dire straits because we could switch over to a oxygen bottle right then and there. So that's my room, A, B, C, D, E, set up for the room, the post-intubation stuff to make it all smooth. The next A, B, C, D, E is for airway equipment. So A, again, aspirator, syringe, and that's that little piece of the puzzle that I always forget at least. So I make sure I have a 10 milliliter syringe ready to go so that we can use that to inflate the balloon of the ET tube. B is for blades. We got out a Mac 3, a Mac 4 blade and tested them. They both had handles, so both the lights were good. Put those on the table, ready to go. C is for the C-shaped oral airway. We had a bucket of airways in the room. I laid my eyes on them and realized, yep, if I need an airway to ventilate this person, it's within easy reach. Of course, in an RSI, ideally, you do not ventilate, uh, especially with a COVID RSI, but if all things go poorly, then uh, we definitely want to have that ready. Uh, D is for duct tape in terms of how we're going to secure this tube so that it does not come out. And there's one of those big plastic tube holders. So we got that out, took it out of the wrapper, laid it on the table so it was ready to go. And then lastly, E is the ET tube. And this is a, a normal size lady, so I chose a 7.5 ET tube. I um, personally don't use stylets because I am an anesthetist and uh, do this a lot, but for the occasional intubator, I do recommend getting a stylet, putting that in, and then bending the tube into a hockey stick formation. So that is two straight sections that are separated by a 30-degree angle, kind of where the, the balloon meets the uh, tube proximally. Do not stylet in the C-shaped curve of the ET tube as it comes out of the package. That's just silly and doesn't really add too much to your um, first pass success. So I had my ET tube out, ready to go. I saw the stylets. I saw a bougie on the wall, so I was ready to go if I needed that because that's my particular approach. But in this case, I uh, suggest that you do as I say and not as I do. And then once I have my room set up, as I do, and once I have my airway equipment set up, as I do, then I do my drugs. And in this particular case, I chose ketamine, 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. This particular person was about uh, 65 kilos, so that works out to about 100 milligrams of each. So we get that drawn up into two syringes and ready to go. And then I talked everybody through the room and I said, look, plan A is going to be a direct look. Plan B is video laryngoscopy, and that video scope is already in the room. Um, I delayed the whole procedure to make sure that it turned on. I connected a blade handle to the device so that I could confirm that the blade was actually viewing and was ready to go. 
Plan C for me is a superglottic airway. We're getting into rescue stuff now, and we had a bin full of LMAs within uh, reach. And Plan D was a surgical airway, and they even had a bin for that. So this particular iteration of Fort St. Nowhere, really well set up. There's a GPA who works there who is clearly very diligent about making sure that these spaces have everything organized. So kudos to you guys. Okay, so it was time to get on with the show. So I'd reviewed with the team. The patient had been pre-oxygenating this whole time. SATs were 100%, hemodynamically stable. We're in good shape. So I went and I pushed the ketamine and the succinylcholine together, and I set a timer for 90 seconds. And this patient continued to breathe for about 20 seconds or so, and then went apneic, and that was absolutely fine. And we just let that nasal prong run, and we, I think we cranked it up to 15 at that point for that APOX benefit, and we kept the non-rebreather in place as well. And I realize at this point in my recounting of this particular intervention, I forgot to mention IV access. Uh, this person had bilateral IVs in the arms, and they were running in some antibiotics and whatnot in one, but the other one was open to ringer's lactate and running freely. So definitely want to ensure as part of that initial setup that there's good IV access, um, which there was. Okay, so 90 seconds went by and I took the number three blade because, again, she's female, so I usually start with a number three unless it's a particularly large um, female. And no issues whatsoever. I got her neck into full extension, had a good look, grade one airway, no problem. So I uh, asked for the ET tube and I forget what the nursing staff was doing at that point, but these are not OR nurses. They were distracted with some sort of detail. And it would have been very tempting for me to take my eyes off the glottis, but I didn't because that's the number one mistake. So I had the glottis in my vision and I had to just sort of say a little bit more loudly and just reframe like, hey, we're in the middle of the intubation, someone needs to pass me the ET tube. And they did. And so we uh, got the ET tube in, no problem at all. As soon as the tube goes through the cords, I intentionally place it so that the proximal edge of the balloon, where that little plastic area of the balloon joins the plastic of the ET tube, is at the level of the cord. So that the balloon's going to inflate and not stretch the cords, but it's going to inflate just deep to the cords. So I check, I place it that way, and then I have a look at where the tube is at the teeth. And I forget, let's say it was at 23 centimeters, which is pretty average for a woman. And then I said, look, the ET tube is at 23 centimeters, let's inflate the balloon. And then I uh, took the hand of one of the nurses that was helping me and I physically put it on the face. So again, I like to have the palm of the helper on the cheek of the patient, so not elevated because everyone wants to kind of rest their hypothenar eminence on the lips and then hold the tube, you know, three or four centimeters back. That's a bad, bad idea. So I forced her to put her hand flat on the cheek and then pinch right at the lips. So that's going to really minimize that accidental movement of the tube up and down. So we inflated the tube and had a crappy stethoscope, had to listen, and couldn't really hear a damn thing because this was um, some junky old stethoscope. But I could see that the tube was misting really aggressively. And I could also see there was some chest rise. And so I kind of looked at this for a few breaths um, with the BVM that was now connected to oxygen and being pressed nice and gently by myself. And I was pleased. It, it looked very, very reassuring. And that combined with the fact that I definitely saw that go through. I got interrupted by a phone call there. My wife just trying to figure out where I am. So I think I got as far as saying 
I was confident that the misting and the, the lungs were inflating bilaterally and had seen the tube go through the cord. So I was convinced that we were in place. So at that point, I looked over to the end tidal monitor because we already had cleverly a um, end tidal capnography in line with the ET tube. So it was just added when we put the BVM on automatically. So automatically connected. And sure enough, there was a waveform. So thank goodness we've got ourselves successfully intubated and ventilating well. So next step for me is to hand off that bag mask ventilation and I handed the bag to one of the nurses and I said I want you to squeeze the bag this much which is basically maybe 10% of the volume of that bag um, just enough to make the chest rise and I want you to do it over six seconds so one two three in one two three release and then I let her take that over and then I turn my attention to securing the tube so we put in that commercial blue plastic tube holder and pop that in and turn the little white thumb screw and uh, put the um, cloth velcro strap around the back of the head and secured that so airway is now secure she is being properly oxygenated and ventilated by hand we're not worried about long-term sedation immediately because we used a induction dose of ketamine at 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. That should be good for approximately 45 minutes. I don't need to worry about that right this second. So my next priority is to connect up the ventilator. And at this point, the flight crew walked in and um, was pleased to see that I was intubating because of some sort of weather window thing. They needed to be off the ground again in a certain amount of time, which is a them problem, not a me problem. But I will still do what I can uh, safely to help them to make sure that that's accomplished. So I asked them, do you want to go on to your ventilator directly? And they said no, and I forget their rationale, but it was very reasonable. So, okay, no problem. So they can begin their assessment of the patient, and I can stabilize this person onto ventilation and uh, we can divide and conquer and get this patient settled and ready to go. So I went around to the ventilator, I turned it on, I fiddled with the settings. I think the initial settings were not appropriate for an adult. I don't, I don't know who at last used it or why, but it was, I think it was a respirate of about 16 in a pressure control ventilation setting, which is fine, but the uh, inspiratory pressure was 16, which sounded a little bit high to me. But throw the patient on, make sure it's working, and sure enough, it worked fine. But we were... Correction, hyperventilating. Within a moment or two, her uh, entitled CO2 was down to about 30, which is lower than what we want. Ordinarily, we would target a entitled CO2 of 35 to 45, at least until we got a ABG and could correlate what the entitled CO2 is compared to the PaCO2. And I say ABG, but really it could be a VBG because that's often a little bit easier and quicker to obtain. Your lab tech or your RN can draw that. And what we really care about is the CO2 concentration in the blood. The oxygenation is not nearly as relevant when you have SpO2, which everywhere in 2021 has. So all that to say that we got her onto the ventilator and that initial settings were too high as I expected, but no big deal to titrate down on that respirate and that um, inflation pressure to target a more normal looking tidal volume. And so I targeted, I think, about 350 milliliters per breath and I titrated down to about a 10 uh, breaths per minute, so six seconds per breath. And that allowed her end tidal CO2 to restabilize itself over the next two minutes at about 37, which is in my target range, and I am happy. I was not particularly worried about overwhelming respiratory illness in this person, given that she had you know, such high SATs to begin with. 
on the pre-oxygenation phase. And basically that was about it. From there, I helped the uh, transport team move the patient over from the hospital stretcher to their narrow little flight stretcher. My role there is to monitor the head and make sure that the patient doesn't accidentally get extubated in the process. I always disconnect the ventilator from the patient during moves because you don't want strain on the um, circuit to accidentally extubate the patient and 10 seconds of apnea is not a big deal. This is a quasi-COVID intubation so we clamp the tube um, whenever we disconnect So that's actually putting a clamp on the ET tubes to make sure that there's nothing coming out of the patient. Very prudent safety precaution. So we did that. We moved her over. We popped her back on our ventilator. The transport team asked me to give a little bolus of ketamine, and then they started their own ketamine infusion. Absolutely reasonable. I think they asked for 20 milligrams of ketamine, which, you know, was about, I guess, 20% of the induction dose, which was absolutely reasonable and again would buy an extra 15 minutes or so before the infusion kicked in so it gives lots of time for that infusion to build up and I'm sure it worked very well. They also asked me to paralyze the patient which is interesting. As I think I've said before on the podcast, ICU typically likes to not paralyze patients any more than necessary. So everybody acknowledges you have to paralyze to get somebody intubated safely. And we had done that. Beyond that, we don't really need to do that. But an exception would be safety in transport. And the transport team felt that rocky uranium for 45 minutes to get to the ICU was indicated. And I'm not going to argue with them. It's basically their patient at that point. And you know, that's a deal that they can work out with their ICU, and maybe it's absolutely justified when you look at that benefit-harm ratio. So no problem. We gave a dose of rock uranium. And that was more or less it. So no real fear there. I think from start to finish, from the time the patient rolled through the doors of the trauma room to the time where I kind of tapped out because the patient was on the stretcher and was fully in control uh, under the transport team was less than 20 minutes. I think the key is just stay calm, follow your checklist, and make sure you don't skip any steps, don't cut any corners to make sure that uh, everything flows smoothly. You don't need to slow anything down. You don't need to second-guess yourself. Just follow your checklist. I hope that was a helpful little temporary episode here just to keep you guys interested. We've got some more interesting stuff on the way shortly and uh, would welcome your feedback. Thanks, guys. Bye for now.